Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sunday, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. Good morning, everyone. Great to be with you this morning. We're continuing in our Matthew series, so if you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, we've got free Bibles in the back, so please feel free to take one home and make it your own. You know, we believe the scriptures are God-breathed and useful for daily living, and that our time spent studying them as a community and meditating on them as individuals is always fruitful and meaningful. So as we open up the scriptures together this morning, I'm going to pray for us. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you, our King. And Lord, I pray that the truth of your scripture, the truth of who you are, and your incredible love for this broken world, Lord, the instruction on how we as your church, as your bride, are to live as the community of your followers. Lord, I just want to thank you that you have given us this instruction on how we're to live with one another, how it is that we are to reflect your heart, and how it is that we are to be your hands and your feet. And Lord, we consider the call to examine our own lives and to humble ourselves and to take upon ourselves the position of a servant. And now, Lord, you call us to step out and to love, to love each other and love others with a love that knows no bounds, a love that will chase after those who have drifted and those who are lost, to live with love that lives in the light of truth, to live with a love that is not willing to leave even one separated from you, sometimes friends, sometimes family, Sometimes people filled with brokenness because of the things that damage their relationships and ultimately harm their witness and testimony for you in your kingdom. So Lord, this morning we pray that our vision of your love and your love for us would be so great and so filled with the Spirit that we would be known as a people caring for each other, putting the needs of those around us before our own, loving each other towards a greater fulfillment of what it means to be your witness. Lord, that's what we pray for here at River's Edge, that we would be known for our love. Lord Jesus, may they know us as your disciples by our love for one another. We pray this in your name. Amen. So let's read through our passage together this morning. Starting in verse 12, Matthew 18, verse 12, it says, What do you think if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away? Will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go look for the one that has wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. And then in verse 15, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. For truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven." Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. 
For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. These passages in Matthew 18 are dealing with what it looks like to live in community. What our Christian witness looks like when the fracturing effects of sin have caused separation and disunity in our relationships. You see, the fall brought about disunity between people and people and between people and God. But Jesus reverses all of this by bringing us back into unity with God and one another. The triune God, who is himself a unity of persons, three people in one, empowers us to be this new man or new humanity. This is part of our core identity and witness. And just because we are a new humanity, though, doesn't mean we are a perfect humanity. Not at all. See, much of the New Testament letters and teachings of Jesus, like this one, are going to focus on teaching followers of Jesus how to operate in unity as a new humanity. We are citizens of heaven, baptized into one new humanity by one spirit, and therefore we have a whole new way of functioning in the world. And the world doesn't want us to function that way. If you were here last week, Matt talked about the effects of social media and the effects of the kind of, kind of the fracturing of relationships because of that. And what happens when we do that is we lose sight of the fact that we were created to be relational beings. We were created to live and flourish in community with one another. But the problem is, is we have this issue of sin that happened a long time ago. And we're still feeling the effects of that. Much of the New Testament letters and the teaching of Jesus, like this one, focus on that. But it also shows us how we're not impervious to this sin in those relationships and when sin inevitably enters the community this gathered community that we see here this morning and threatens to fracture relationships as we have um, as we have together we see these fractured relationships in a number of examples you, you probably have witnessed some of them in your missional communities or in your families or in the relationships that you have at work it causes us to lose sight of the fact that God wants us to move forward into a greater expression of who He is and who we are in Him. See, we are the citizens of heaven baptized into this new humanity by His Spirit, one Spirit. To bring together in unity is God's desire. But the American impulse is very different than that. It seems to be right now we live in a culture that is trying to fracture us and put us into disunity, to elevate the, the individual over the corporate, to push off what it looks like to be thriving in community. And we see churches split, and we see small groups break up, and we see friendships end even within the church, and people wander off oftentimes like lost sheep because they don't understand what it means to live in community in a situation and work through that situation to a greater degree of wholeness in their own lives and ultimately in the life of the community. And so they hold a grudge and that bitterness keeps them or keeps others at arm's length. And we, and I've experienced the same thing, I've experienced this in relationships that I've been a part of throughout the years, it tends to push us apart. And we don't want to do the work sometimes of that restoration and the hard work that's going to take 
to, to work through that, to seek out and to confront and to repent sometimes ourselves and to provide an, a, a means of reconciliation, forgiving one another in love. And yet that is exactly what Jesus is instructing his followers, his disciples, us this morning to do. He's instructing us to forgive one another in love. You see, we are to be unified in part because it's a testament to God's love for us. It's how God expressed His love for us. And it's how God, Jesus expressed His love for that one that wandered off in the parable that we just read, the parable of the lost sheep, going after the lost sheep. In part because it makes for a powerful witness within the gathered community, within the church, but it also makes a powerful witness to the culture around us. The culture that sees a lot of different ways to, to live and to thrive. Not necessarily in line with what Jesus is talking about here this morning in Matthew 18. And, and that's why Jesus ends, I think, at the end of this passage that we read, by saying, truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. See, Jesus is making statements about himself, not in isolation. He's making statements about himself, about his spirit, about us in community. If just two of us agree on something... Jesus says God the Father will move in power. He will move in power to bring about whatever that power needs to bring about in restoration and reconciliation, in reformation and transformation, whatever it might be. And His presence, and just two of us are gathered in Jesus' name, His presence is there in a unique and powerful way. And this all speaks powerfully in favor of a unified community instead of individuals who are alienated from one another. Because we're called to live together. We're called to work things out together. And so the question comes up, how, are, how is this unity to be maintained when sin is sure to crop up? How is it supposed to be maintained? How, what are we supposed to do? Supposed to go to, I mean, we're supposed to Call out the seer team and take them on? Yeah, right? America's done some confrontational things over the years, not always applying a biblical framework to it. What we're, calling, what we're called to do, though, practically speaking, is to have tough conversations in love. And, not, and this is really not something a lot of us, I think, have experienced. I'll share from my own experience. I grew up in a family that was very non-confrontational. We avoided confrontation at all costs. Um, you've heard of sweeping things under the rug? We had to walk around the pile of things that were swept under the rug, right? Because it was out of sight and out of mind. You just didn't talk about it, and therefore it didn't exist. But really it did exist, didn't it? And so even, even in the last few years, at the age of 57, as I've been working through what it means to be a stronger example and disciple of Jesus in my own life, 
I've had to deal with some of these things and wrestle with what does it mean to, to have conflict well, to do conflict well. Because I don't think we get it modeled to us all the time in the way that we would hope. And I think that's why this passage is so critically relevant to life together today. We need to see and learn how to confront in love and how to move towards restoration in tough situations. How to do it well. Otherwise, what are we? We're just like the wandering sheep that's wandered off and all we know how to do is to walk away in isolation. Not the way God intended it to be. And so really this has to do with how we as a community, as followers of Jesus, are to live and interact with one another for the purpose of the witness of the gospel. And to see the gospel going forth with power. Because one of the key points I want us to kind of take away from this morning, there's a few, but one of them is how we treat one another, how we deal with each other in community, how we love one another toward that ideal that we have in King Jesus, in our King Jesus, greatly impacts the power of the witness of the church and its authority or its impact on the culture today. What we do matters in confrontation and in conflict. Because we're called to be witnesses. Jesus said in Matthew 28, you will be witnesses to the very end of the earth. You see, we are actually called to tell people about Jesus and how to live like Jesus. But as Matt talked about last week, with some of the influences of the culture on us and some of the negative influences that we find and the impacts that social media has had on us, it's not, it's not comfortable to do. Especially if you overlay a grid of, of moral relativism over the last 20 years and this idea that, that tolerance has to, be, has to be applied to every situation. Dorothy Sarah wrote a book many years ago called Creator Chaos. And I think she actually gives tolerance a different name. I think it's a more appropriate and helpful name. And that is tolerance is basically apathy. It's a lack of care, of disinterest, of self-interest, our interest of ourselves has overridden an interest in the concern for others. And what would happen to the lost sheep if that grid were to have been applied to the shepherd? He'd still be out there wandering. Because the self-interest would have taken over for the interest of even the one who had wandered off. The rise of indiv individualism, and I, I, from what, you know, what I took away from Matt's teaching last week, the rise and effect of social media has contributed to the death of community. And especially to trust and confrontation and restoration in community. And, and, and maintaining that trust and, and being able to trust in the strength of relationships that can withstand confrontation. It's really nothing new. The two extremes are found throughout church history and both can lead to the harm of community. And I think that what Jesus does in these passages this morning before us is that he elevates this community, this bringing back together in unity, and he eliminates the isolation. He goes after the one who's isolated and bringing them back into community. We confront the one who's isolated, trying to bring them back into community. He does that, and that's why he leaves the 99 and goes after the one. 
He's returning us to the Genesis model, the pre-fall model of how God intended for us to live in relationship with one another. Genesis, God said, it is not good for humanity to be alone. It's not good, wayward, dysfunctional, drifting, little sheep, for you to be alone, for you to be out there on your own. Why? Because you're created for community. Let me tell you a story about John. John was a young man in my youth group of a church that I led for many years. He struggled. He had some struggles. He was in bad relationships. He was in bad company. He made some bad choices. He went down the kind of the path of dabbling in drugs, and he found himself um, addicted to meth at the age of 17. And it came on pretty fast. And I remember one night as we were in um, kind of doing some things in the youth group, he came in and, and he, was, he was lit up, and you could tell. And I had a choice to make because I knew that, and based on situations that had occurred in the past, that this could become pretty volatile. And so I met him and I, I asked him to, to come aside and he put his hands in his pocket and he made sure I know he had, a, he had kind of a big knife in one of his pockets there. And I had to confront him. I had to confront him about his presence there and safety for himself and the safety for others. And, and as I'm sharing with him in love and as I'm sharing with him the fact that this isn't a good time for him to be there and let's call your, your mom or your dad and have them come get you and I'll wait here with you, John. It's okay. I understand where you are. And can we get together and can we go have coffee or can we go get a donut or whatever and talk about this? And like a lot of 17-year-olds, boy, got all puffed up and I wasn't quite sure for a moment where it was going to go. And then I kind of saw him, saw his shoulders relax a little bit. And I thought, thank you, Lord. And the Lord was there in that moment and the situation was diffused and, and what turned into a, a long journey with a family with a son who has, has been in and out of rehab and has been in and out of a lot of situations, it turned into a relationship where if he goes and gets admitted to the psych ward, I get the phone call because he trusts me. Because seven or eight years ago, I was willing to have a little conversation with him and confront him. Was it fun? Absolutely not. <laughs> in fact, it was, it was a little scary at moments. But I think John would tell you today, if he were sitting here, that it was a transformational moment in his own life. He still struggles, like we all do. He still has a journey that he's going to be on for a while. But he knows he's loved in community. He knows he's, he's welcomed in that community. And I think that's what we see in the lost sheep. We see the fact that in Jesus and in God... Love chases after the good, regardless of the wrong. Love chases after good, regardless of the wrong. That's what I see in this parable and moving into this whole topic of confrontation. I see an opportunity to love others well. I see an opportunity to love others when they're in a difficult position. And that's really what we see in this passage. 
We do need to make one distinction, though, is there is a difference. This passage can be read in a couple of ways. One is the lost sheep could be someone who doesn't even know Jesus, right? And that's really about witness and evangelism. That's a little bit different than the passage we're talking about this morning, because I think it applies to both contexts. Because clearly the 99 are in the flock, and the one sheep has wandered off from the flock. So I think that there is some biblical evidence that what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew is a believer who has wandered off because of sin. And Jesus says he is willing to go after that one person and set the other 99 aside. He then immediately goes into this whole conversation about confronting sin in community in the gathered community, in the church. And so we need to understand that, that there's a difference between good witness and loving someone into the kingdom because they don't even know who Jesus is, and there's a difference between that and bringing a believer who's wandered off back into the flock because of the, of the fracturing effects of sin in the relationships that they're involved in, sometimes in their families, sometimes in other relationships, certainly within the church. It's the only way that community will actually grow, I think. If we invite them back without confronting the sin, that genuine community that we're looking for can never really form. And they'll continue to limp waywardly on their own path, like John did for many years, until he really was brought back into community. And thankfully today I can say He's, he's, out, he's down in, uh, he's, he's in, he's in uh, basically in Portland, and he's doing well. He's in a community where he's thriving. But it's the only way that community can actually stick and grow and, and form and come together, and that's why we need to address sin. We need to address it when we see it. But let's face it, we aren't often willing to confront someone who's engaging in patterns that are destructive to either themselves or to community. Engaging in sin. So we have to be careful to define what that destructive sin is. And I I got four little questions for you for a simple litmus test. So, So sin in community, is it destructive to their spiritual growth? This is pre-confrontation. Is it destroying their witness of Jesus? Is it hurting their friendships? And is it destroying them? See, if they're engaged in these patterns, then Jesus says, love chases after them, chases after the good, regardless of the wrong. That's where this whole process of confrontation is going to come in. It's really a true form of discipleship. Confrontation done well is a true form of discipleship. It's a true form of becoming more like Jesus because Jesus was confrontational. Jesus confronted. He did it in love. He did it in truth. But he was a confronter. And see, discipleship is what we're called to as a gathered community, called to grow in our likeness to Jesus And I believe part of our growth in that relationship together is not just overlooking mistakes, but actually confronting with the goal of reconciliation and restoration and renewal in community. 
Because witness and discipleship should be seen as the outcome of a gathered community that has been consumed by the love of Jesus. Let me say that again. Witness and discipleship should be seen as the outcome of a gathered community that has been consumed by the love of Jesus. And in that discipleship is this section on confrontation. That's where confrontation comes into the picture. I think it's also important to notice that it's in the context of the pursuit of the wandering sheep that we have the discussion of how to confront in community, going after them. It's because we care so deeply about the relationships that we are not willing to allow even one relationship to be fractured, even one relationship to be broken. Jesus wasn't. Jesus was willing to go after that one. And he gives us a model of how we're to do that, kind of what I call relational confrontation. That's what we see in verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. If they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And so Matthew 18, starting in verse 15, gives us four simple steps for confrontation. Four simple steps on how to confront, how to deal with a brother or a sister that is displaying these patterns of brokenness that will lead them to being the lost sheep, the wandering sheep. And the first one is this. Jesus says, first, you go. First you go and you talk to them, right? Do you notice that he doesn't say, first you have one of the elders go? First you had your dad go? You have your wife go? <laughs> Not picking on you, Ian. He says, you go. You go. If God, by his Holy Spirit, has, has illumined something within you to, to show you that there's brokenness in this relationship, he's calling you to go. He's calling me to go. If God's laying that on my heart. And you go with a balance of truth and love. Recognize, recognizing the fact that you could easily have a plank in your own eye and you're not there to contemn, but to confront. Now, I, after we're done with these four, I'm going to give you three or four simple questions to ask that um, will show you if you have a plank in your own eye before you go to confront someone. And, and, and they actually help pretty well because oftentimes I, I haven't had a plank. I, I've, had a, I've had a beam in my eye. I mean, it would support this whole roof structure sometimes and I don't even see it. It's so stuck in there. You go. You go and you talk to them and it says, if they listen to you, you have won them over. If you have placed them, and you have placed them firmly on the road to reconciliation. Well, that's a good thing. If they listen, you've won them over. The Holy Spirit's working in their heart, just like the Holy Spirit is working through you to have that confrontation, to have that conversation, to have that opportunity for transformation and restoration and all the other opportunities that could come from that. So first you go. Second, if they won't listen, you're supposed to bring one or two others with you. 
We are relational beings, right? We were created for community. You bring one or two others because there's power in community. What did Jesus say at the end of this passage? Where two or three or you are, you are gathered, my Father, I'm, I'm not only there with you, but if you ask something in my, in my name, my Father is going to answer that. If we go before someone and ask them to be transformed, to be brought out of this relational pattern of sin, whatever it is that they're in, God's going to work. That's what His Word says. That's a promise that His Word will work. We're relational beings created for community. There's power in the witness of community. So you bring one or two others with you. Third, if they still refuse to listen, you tell it to the church, the gathered community. Gathered community could be your MC. Gathered community just means the group that you have some kind of ongoing relationship with, and there is, there's relationship to the depth that you're willing to listen to other people. Oftentimes, it's in the context of the gathered community that the greatest work of the Spirit brings about restoration, brings about reconciliation. And if you sit in your MC week after week and you build community and you're seeking to be disciples, true disciples, spiritual formation is taking place, the Holy Spirit is working in you, you're seeing God move in your life and in the life of others, that is a place where you will see the opportunity to confront in love well. And finally, it says, if they persist, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Well, what does that mean? Public humiliation? Burning at the stake? Crucifixion? No! <laughs> How are we supposed to treat people who don't know Jesus? We're supposed to treat them with love. We're supposed to treat them with love. We're not called to condemn. We're not called to judge. That's God's responsibility. We're simply called to judge, thankfully. <laughs> Let me tell you a story about Bob. Bob was a deacon in a church. And he had a job where he had access to materials and he found himself in a situation where he was making poor decisions and taking company materials for his own benefit. And um, he got caught. And he came before the board of elders of church that I was leading and he confessed what he had done and it, it took a while it took a while honestly it was a pretty deep it was a pretty deep fall there was layers and layers and layers of deceit and sin that had taken place and so after uh, several confrontational meetings um, Bob decided that the best thing for him to do was to just plead Guilty to what he had done. Now, this had gone to the point where he was going before he, he was going he was going to go before a judge. And and I remember telling him, I said, Bob, I said, I really believe that God can do the greatest amount of work if we're willing to work with truth and love through this. And it was it was a hard thing. 
And I, I said, I'm going to be with you every step of the way. And I remember going down to the superior court or whatever court handled this case in Spokane. And I don't have a lot of experience in courtrooms, and it was pretty, it was pretty awe-inspiring, and it was pretty um, disquieting at the same time as we sat there and we listened and we heard um, cases. And then suddenly his name was called, and he went up. And, and I remember him pleading, and he had already talked to his, his uh, defense attorney. And, and then... Um, the judge, I remember the judge asked, is there anybody here to speak on his behalf? And I had the opportunity to stand up and tell this judge about who Bob was. That he, had making, he had made a bad decision, and he was willing to own that decision. But let me tell you about some of the things you don't know about Bob. How he serves, and how he loves, and how he's the first to be there when we need to do some kind of work project in someone's house. And he ended up getting a class four felony because of it. That's a serious thing. You know how hard it is to get a job with a felony? It's hard. And that was 10 years ago. And I just heard about a month ago that he can now apply for his rights after a 10-year period of being free and clear and walking in the truth. He can apply for his rights to vote again. He can apply for his rights to be a citizen in the United States, basically. He can have, basically have those charges annulled, I think it's called. But what that doesn't tell you is that for the 10-year period in between when he got sentenced and when he got basically the opportunity to be freed, he was freed in his heart. He was freed in relationships. He was welcomed in community. He grew substantially. God provided amazing jobs in the midst of coming out of nowhere so he could provide for his family because he was willing to accept the fact that he made a mistake and when he was confronted to begin the process of restoration. And he's still in community because of that, because it was done well. And he was willing to stand up in front of the church and, and with tears in his eyes, Tell everybody, hey, I, I just need you guys to love me. I made a mistake. That was one of the most powerful examples of Matthew 18 that I've ever experienced. And I think even if we were to have him come up here and talk to us today, he'd share the same thing. It was because of the love of Jesus and the love and the grace that he experienced in community that he was able, able, even able to make it through that 10-year period. That's what restoration and community looks like. Three simple questions that I want to end with this morning. Some practical things before you confront. The first one is this. Pray before you go. Make sure you know that you know that God's calling you to do this. Oftentimes we get in the way of what God wants to do. So pray before you go. Ask the Lord, Lord, do I have a right to confront this person? Do I have a relationship with this person that is going to allow me into their heart and into their life so that they can receive this? Have you given me a voice? Do you want me to confront this person? Are you confronting me, Lord, because of my desire to confront this person? <laughs> when I ask that question, oftentimes that's the one that stops me. Because God's working in me more than he's working in the other person. 
People need to know that you care before they care how much you know. You got to ask God, do I have the right to have this conversation? Second thing is, in the midst of the confrontation, are you winning them over in love? You got to go in with a heart for restoration. Love has got to be at the center of that. If your goal is not to see that person restored, then you aren't able to speak in the love and the grace of Jesus, who was willing to set aside the 99 to go after the one. That's the scenario that we find ourselves in. If you can't do that, then don't go. Involve someone else who can. See, the plank that I talked about before doesn't always help us. Sometimes it keeps us from confronting well because it doesn't allow us to be humble in the confrontation. And real biblical confrontation is showing someone who they really are in love and out of the love for them to be reconciled to Christ and to look more like Christ and that your relationship in the gathered community would look more like Christ as a result. And third, and Libby, I'm going to call you up to the stage as I'm finishing this point here. Are you being clear in your confrontation? Are you being clear? Think it through. Pray it through. Know what you're going to say and be clear in your confrontation. And don't sugarcoat it. Don't exaggerate it. Speak the truth in love. It's the best way to confront. Speaking the truth in love. You've got to work on your voice inflection and your tone. And, you know, you don't want to be, you know, showing the knife hilt out of your pocket or, you know, standing there like this and all that stuff. But speak the truth in love. And if you do that, if we do that, and if we're willing to receive that, we are going to see amazing things happen in the life of the gathered community that we call home. We're going to see lives transformed. Not only in our community, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces. Because confronting well and doing it in the way that Jesus taught us to do it, to do confrontation, is why we're able to sit here this morning and have the promises of God speaking into us as we prepare to do that. I mean, if you look at the table that Jesus has prepared for us this morning, it's, it's laced with confrontation. You can't get any more confrontational than the cross. And yet it's at the cross where Jesus was willing to confront your sin. He was willing to confront my sin. He was willing to say, hey, I know you can't go there, but you know what? I can. And if I do, my Father's going to receive you because of me. That's what the table's set for this morning. The table that Jesus prepared. And Jesus is calling us, as the gathered community, to come to the table this morning. I'm going to invite the prayer team forward too. We have a prayer team here. They'll have a prayer lanyard on. And they'll be over on the side. And if there's something about this morning's message that has kind of touched something in your heart and you really want to explore that in prayer, that's what they're here for. They're here to pray with you. They're here to help you through that. If, if the Holy Spirit is just working in your heart and you say, you know what? No one's confronting me, but I really feel like God's speaking to me right now. That's an awesome time to go for prayer. Because people here are going to love you and, and you will find grace and truth in that prayer. So the tables are open. I invite you down to a feast at the, the banqueting table of Jesus.